Okay, so we're on now, March the 18th, Lesson 21, and we're beginning again at chapter 4 of Matthew, verse 17. So we've got a definite change here. There's a, there's a definite shift. Even in the words that are used here, it's very evident that something new, something different is happening, is about to begin. So in verse 17 here, it simply says that from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we'll recall from verses 13 and 14 that Jesus is now in Capernaum. This is where the Lord's message of repentance begins as He is preaching. I'm sure it doesn't mean He never said the word repentance to anybody He was talking to. But even the, the words that are used here, if I understand it correctly in my study, speaks of a definite change. This is a line drawn in the sand here. We saw Him come forth for His public ministry at His baptism. It began there. And here, regarding His preaching in particular, uh, folks, it's about repentance. And we talked and we looked at repentance uh, from other reference points as we've moved forward, particularly back when John talked about repentance, John the Baptist, that is. And he challenged those scribes and Pharisees, those Jewish leaders who had come forth uh, seemingly for baptism. He said, you know, who has warned you to flee from the wrath which is to come, which would indicate that that is an element of repentance. And we talked about that, that it's, there's an acknowledgement, as one old preacher said, that there is a payday someday. And we look at that from a, an internal perspective. In other words, quite simply, we become aware of our sin, do we not? It was an element of repentance. And Jesus would talk about that later in Luke chapter 5 when He said, you know, it's the sick who need a physician. People who don't know, people who don't think that they need forgiveness aren't going to look for forgiveness. It's as simple as that. And you see that throughout. He came to save sinners. I can only recall one person in my life and witness who told me that he wasn't a sinner. He wasn't a sinner and he believed it. Believed it with all of his heart. But whether people say that or not, they certainly act that way, do they not? When they particularly hear the word time and time again and will not respond. So rest assured, and I just want to go back and just kind of highlight this, this basic element here of repentance that we looked at several weeks ago, a couple of three months ago, and this issue about knowing and being aware of our sin. And we finished that conversation. I went back and looked. We finished that conversation by talking about in our maturity as a Christian, even as a Christian, we get to the point where we desire that. Do we not? Now think about it. We welcome, if you will, the chastening hand of God or God opening up our eyes through His Word, certainly through His Spirit, through the testimony of someone else who loves and cares about us and comes along and says, uh, you know, hey Mike, hey Darren, you, you need to rethink that. You, you need to look at that in your life. Have you considered this? What does the Word of God say about this issue, this decision, or whatever it is? That's the way we live, is it not? And we understand that that is a good thing. And repentance is a joyous thing. I mean, the whole analogy there is about a father taking a child and correcting them, correct? 
And Jesus would say, if your, if your earthly father knows how to do that, if I can paraphrase a little bit here, then certainly your heavenly father knows how to do that. And do we accept it as God's um, loving involvement, if you will, in our life, treating us as children? And that's what we are and certainly what we want to be and want to be recognized and treated like His children. And if we do, the Word of God and the Spirit of God will correct us. It'll do that. And we, we welcome that. Jesus begins at this time preaching repentance. And He also is preaching. He says, why? If you were asked the question, why are you preaching repentance? He says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So a fresh start, a new activity. When it says he began, and this may seem simple, but I looked at the words in particular, he's talking about literally to commence or to begin in reference to an order of time. So that's what it's talking about here. And all that's laid out for Christ, this is where he's supposed to be doing this particular thing right now. This is where the preaching of repentance Begin. So to preach, caruso is the word. It means to proclaim or to publish. And here it's a reference, particular reference to the proclamation of certainties. That's evident in the word usage. A proclamation of certainties, not suggestions or possibilities. Later we would look and see, that, you know, they talked about how Jesus spoke and He preached with authority. So when he gets into these things, this is having a definite impact upon people. And it's the truth of what he's saying. And we say again, you know, you'll hear this, and you'll probably hear some of this from me on April the 8th, but it's evident that Jesus, when you walk by him, pass him by, nothing about him like anybody else. And that only serves to highlight the fact that when he spoke, things were different. When he spoke, that which came out of his mouth grabbed your attention. And when he spoke the Word of God, and he spoke only what God told him to speak, it did its work. And it had an impact on people. Even to the point that those that they sent out from the temple to arrest him could not could not do it. And I'm certain that, you know, part of that is because it wasn't time, you know, and God protected him. We see examples throughout the New Testament, you know, where they tried to grab him and he couldn't. We looked at one there in Luke 4 where they wanted to take him up on the cliff and throw him out. And it says that he weaved his way, however miraculous, through them and got away from them. They couldn't do that, just like they couldn't come and make him king like they wanted to do here in this time frame. They wanted to make him... It wasn't time for that. It was going to happen just as God had laid it out to happen. And right now, he begins preaching repentance. I come across a really neat quote here uh, from one of my commentary studies here. And this, I don't know this guy, R.C.H. Linsky. You ever heard of him? Yeah, okay. It's what he says about that, about the preaching and proclamation. The point, he says, to be noted is that to preach is not to argue. It's not to reason. It's not to dispute or convince by intellectual proof. Against all of which, he says, a keen intellect may bring counter-argument. We simply state in public or testify to all men the truth which God bids us state. 
No argument can assail the truth presented in this announcement or testimony. Men either believe the truth, as all, he says, as all sane men do or should, or refuse to believe it as only fools venture to do. R.C.H. Linsky, commentator, I would think, Christian writer. So, But we see the truth in that. And the duty of preaching, and we could say, we could bring that on down, the duty and witness is to speak the truth. Yes, if we say one thing and do something else, then we have foiled the, the power of our witness. We've brought something in against it, right? We're not credible. We're not believable. But the power is in the word spoken. And don't forget that. The power is in the truth of the word of God. That's where it is. It's not in personality. It's not in education. It's not in intellect. It's in yielding oneself to the truth of God's Word. Because it's the power of the Word and the Holy Spirit that moves people's hearts, that begins to deal with them about their need. And I try to pray in terms of somebody's greatest need, even if I'm praying with them over a sickness or whatever. God meet their greatest need. Melissa and I were traveling in this morning. We had the, the Christian radio on and they were talking about this new movie that's out from the guy who's with uh, Mercy Me. Yeah. And he's talking about his relationship with his father. I'm sure most of you have probably heard about it. It's a big story behind this song. And, uh, but the, what interested me about it was he talked about how the way his father treated him. He said his father beat him you know, and for years and years and years and then his dad got cancer and started dealing with his own mortality. And bottom line, he was gloriously saved and literally changed in a marvelous way. And there were a few years there where his dad grew and so forth. And he just talks about that. And it reminded me once again that we got to make sure that our primary objective is to yield ourselves, if you want to say create an environment or to keep an environment in our fellowship, in our church, clean, pure, so that the power of God can rest upon us. Because we can't do anything except be obedient to the Word of God. And that is to preach, to teach, and to live the Word of God. And Jesus here, yes, is preaching repentance, but He's also our example. And we live in a world today... And even in, in, I'll say, church circles or Christian circles where you don't hear a lot about repentance anymore. And we probably do here in this fellowship because our church is true to the Word. But I can assure you, outside the fellowship, there is a resistance. And it's almost like the first thing you have to be concerned about is whether or not you're going to put somebody off. Or some might say you might even lose that person, cause them to have no interest in fellowship or Christians or church things, if you will, or being at church or being in a Bible study or listen to the Word because it becomes too personal. We always need to lean upon and to respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our life regarding our witness. If we get out, if we get one foot in front of the other, without thinking, without being considerate, without listening to the voice of God, without preparing, without living the Word of God, how can we share repentance with somebody else? How can we do that? It won't work. It's a wonderful thing. Simply.
to be able <laughs> to repent, to have that ability, to have that possibility in our life. You know, the angels can't do that. They can't do it. They're condemned forever. But we can respond to God's word in repentance. And we see the word here. It's that same word that we've been looking at, metanoia or metanoio. And it means to think differently or afterwards to reconsider something. And I like what it, I saw here. It says to, to feel compunction. I had to go look up compunction. All right. Does anybody know what compunction is this morning? Not you. Anybody else? <laughs> compunction. It means just to feel guilty, to feel guilt, or to be taken to a new level of moral scruple, if you will. We would refer to it today as a, a pricking of the conscience. And this is the power of the Word of God. This is the power that it has. It's manifested in creation to a degree, it's manifested in our conscience to a degree. But when you come to the Word of God and the power and the presence of Christ, whom I say again is the living Word of God, it's the only thing that will work. It's the only thing that will produce eternal change in our life. This is what Jesus is preaching. Repentance. He's preaching repentance. It involves a change of opinion, a change of direction. It involves a change of life itself. To repent, he says, is to have a radical change of heart and will and consequently behavior. Don't you wish that repentance, true repentance, instantly changed your behavior in all regards, 100% of the time, every time? Don't you wish that? Because it doesn't, does it? does a lot of things. I can think of a lot of things that changed in my life when I came to Christ and trusted Him uh, and nothing else for the forgiveness of sin. Trusted Him and Him alone. A definite change took place. There was a definite change in thinking. There was a definite change in priority. But it was a, it was a starting point in so many things. As God brings to bear His Word on things that I never even had even thought about because I was ignorant that God's Word spoke about certain things in my life. <clears throat> but God was faithful. And this is our life. This is what we talk about and refer to when we talk about our progressive sanctification. To rest assured, yeah, at that point, when we trust Christ, we're sanctified. There's a, as we would say, a positional sanctification. That's, a, that's part of justification. It's accomplished by God Himself. We, we can't do that. That's in response to His grace or because of His grace, His mercy. But His desire for us is to continually be transformed. We like to say to move toward Christ-likeness in every area of our life. Yeah. When Peter says, shepherd the flock of God among you, this is the goal. Is that people would become more like Christ. Would that not change a lot of things? To be Christ-like in our thinking, in our pursuits, in our priorities, in what's important to us, all because our repentance is genuine and our sanctification is continual. And, it, and we, we're mindful, constantly mindful, that we will give an account of that. It's going to happen. It's going to happen in a very face-to-face kind of way. I don't know what it'll be like. I can only imagine but it's going to happen like this. 
It's going to be very real is the point. That's what's going to happen. But how do we know that? Because the power of God's Word impresses that upon our heart. And we're mindful of what Christ has done for us. That's our motivation. That we've been forgiven. That we've repented. That our our slate, if you will, has been wiped clean. And we've seen all these evidences in our life since our new birth about how God moves to teach us, to change us, to discipline us in our life, confirming that we are indeed children of God. What else do we want? That realization right there has a huge impact, if you will, on our priorities in this life. Because Christ is our everything. It's like Paul said, I live, I die. Christ is all in all, and He is the difference. He's the absolute difference. The second part of what he says up here, he makes reference to the kingdom of heaven being at hand. <clears throat> and of course, this was the message, if you recall, of John the Baptist back in chapter 3, verse 2. And it's now repeated by Christ. He's here. Messiah is here, repeated by Christ Himself. And then even later, and we're still in Matthew in chapter 10, where He sends out the twelve, the message is the same. They're going out because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it refers to the establishment of God's rightful sovereignty in judgment and in salvation. It's the messianic age, if you will. Christ is here. Messiah is present. And when He accomplishes His work, He's going to stay here in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit Himself will be with us. Part of that triune God. So this is a wonderful thing. This is what's happening. This has been kicked off, if you will. Well, He mentions the kingdom. And the actual physical kingdom has been set aside, if you will, quite frankly, due to a lack of faith. Not that it took God by surprise. This is the way it was to go down. But from a practical standpoint, looking back, we know Christ was not received by His own people. And many others rejected Him. The present spiritual kingdom exists in the heart of every believer. We know that. As the Bible would say, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we belong to God, that we are a part of that kingdom. And Christ will one day rule Israel. He'll rule the world. But now He rules believers. And everything that God the Father has prepared regarding the way things are supposed to click along in this world on His time frame are happening to the T. And it will not change. Peace now exists in the lives of those, quite frankly, who know Messiah, who know Jesus. They have peace. And those who don't, do not. Like the church sign, you see this. No, what is that? No Jesus, no peace. K-N-O. No Jesus, no N-O. No Jesus, no peace. That's true. We have that peace. So John was, John the Baptist, that is, you know, when he was talking to Christ, he said, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of, of God, He gave all credibility to Him. In John 3, 3, 4, 34, Jesus said, I speak the things which I have seen with My Father. That's what you're getting from Me. You could never take what Jesus said, nor could the scribes or Pharisees. They could never take what He said 
and find a contradiction in the Word of God. And of course, they were just looking primarily at the law of Moses and certainly the Old Testament. Couldn't do that. And it was always this revelation that they got it wrong, that they were off base. And they knew that. But they were so ingrained in their religiosity that they could not bring themselves out of that. Jesus said, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. That's authority. When somebody says, you know, I'm, I'm from God, you know, you can study from John the seven I am statements, if you will, and learn a great deal there. But to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or to say, I and my Father are one. Or as on occasion, just simply to respond to the questions of the Pharisees who were ready to hurl a rock at him for his blasphemies. And he just simply says in response to their questions, I am. They knew what that meant. But they couldn't do anything to him against Him until it was time. So Jesus continues preaching from this point regarding repentance. Well, He goes out in verse 18 and here He starts uh, gathering up some help. Okay? And He begins calling His disciples. (coughs) So, We can move from this issue of repentance as he begins calling these folks. You know, a lot of times when we think about Christ calling the disciples, we get the picture that he just walks up to one or has a dealing with one and says, you know, follow me, and they just get up and go. Not ever having seen Jesus or looked at him or heard him. Well, that's not the case. And it's certainly the case here with Simon Peter. Simon, who is called Peter, well, let me read the verse, verse 18. It says, Now as Jesus was walking by the sea, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, or later called Peter, named by Jesus, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, they had met and actually followed Jesus for a brief time. Uh, it was back in, was it Bethabara? After being followers of John the Baptist, Peter was most likely a a follower of John the Baptist. We know that his brother was. But he and Andrew had left and returned. They had gone back to Capernaum. They had the fishing business and so forth. If I understand it right, at that time they were not in business with James and John. That happened right in there because they were followers of John the Baptist as well. So all this is coming together. They had heard him before. They had followed around with him and Jesus had called them and gotten their attention and they had made certain commitments, but there's a time when they're called for permanent ministry. And that's what we're looking at here. If you look at the Bible regarding Peter, and this is really interesting. I hope, I hope you've got that uh, book, 12 Ordinary Men, uh, and you want to know and you want to see a good breakdown, a good... Um, we'll call it a dossier or whatever, on each of them, then read that book. I've gotten some good information from that book. I've read that book for years. But you'll notice that there are, there are four lists of Jesus' disciples in the Bible. And of course, you know who is listed number one, who's listed at the top of each of those four lists. Do you not? 
Who is it? It's Peter. Each and every time. Peter is the unquestionable leader. He's the unquestionable spokesman for the disciples. How can we say that? Because the Bible is filled with him, quite frankly, running his mouth, stepping forward, doing this, Jesus dealing with him and so forth. Yeah, yeah, we get a lot of a lot of comfort out of Peter, yeah. Thank you, Peter. But that's what we have, and Christ deals with him and deals with him as a son, corrects him. And it's interesting when you look at this and read this, and I'll make some points here about that in just a moment. But he is the leader, and it's not just because of his domineering personality. That can be a good thing, can it not? When you find somebody who has a little confidence and a little courage, you know, and maybe even couple that with some experience and maybe just a little bit of speaking skill, you know, or something that gets people's attention, but that's only a springboard. God has to change the heart. God has to, especially when you're talking about witness to people, teaching people, preaching people, God has to put it in the person's heart, the genuineness of His Word. And maybe you should look at it another way. It says God has to get everything out of that vessel in order for it to be effective, in order for it not to be tainted. Right? We want to be emptied, if you will. And while God may bless us with certain characteristics... And I could even say that the world might consider as being effective for leadership or for speaking or whatever. That's a far cry from the power of God's Spirit being upon someone and God being able to speak through that person and use that person. That has everything to do with being a clean vessel, being a pure vessel, being wholly given over to the will of God. Pride is a terrible thing. Pride will destroy everything. The Bible talks about it. We've talked about it in my teaching. From Genesis all the way through the Revelation, pride raises its ugly head, does it not? And Peter was full of it. And I can say that because the Bible indicates that. But I can tell you this too. He didn't die that way. And he wasn't that way when he preached at Pentecost. He still had those tentacles there. We'll see evidence of that. He still had those there, as did Paul. Paul was the same way. We'll look at that. But the list in Matthew 10.2, we'll just stay in Matthew. There are four lists. You see it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in Acts you find these four lists. But in Matthew 10.2, he uses the word there first regarding Peter. He first called Peter. It's the Greek word protos. And it means chief. And it means, literally, it's used as leader of a group. So the word usage there would validate Peter as the recognized leader. We know that Peter had a wife from Matthew 8.14 because it mentions his mother-in-law. That's where Jesus, you recall, went to heal his mother-in-law. We don't know if Peter had any children at all. We have no idea about that. The Bible doesn't share anything about that. But we do know a lot about Peter. We know he had a unique personality. We know that he had specific uh, personality traits, if you will, which the Lord, you know, He sovereignly accomplished that for His purposes in Peter's life, just like He's made you and I the way that we are. And He will use what He's put there, you know, He will use that. I like to see a person with tenacity, don't you? I like, I like them to be on my team at work. I'll work them to death. 
because you can't give them enough and they love it. But you don't see a lot of those. God gives us those abilities. Thank, thankful that He does. <clears throat> we have to be careful with that because sometimes what He gives is deep within a person. It's not manifested like we think it should be. That is to say, it's not read, readily noticeable. We don't know what God is doing in the life of a person. Let me give you a good example. Just think about this. <clears throat> what about a person who is a true prayer warrior? Okay? Think about this. They're a true prayer warrior. And what, what would you, if I just throw that out there, what would you think would be the characteristics of somebody who can genuinely be described as a true prayer warrior? What would that be? Humility. That's good. What else? What was that? Diligence. Diligence. I was thinking discipline, but yeah, you're, that's, that's all over it. Diligence, staying after it, tenacity. What else did I hear? Trusting. Trusting. Yeah. Knowing the Word of God, praying according to the Word of God. What about being involved? What about and, and sharing a burden, carrying a burden, whether it's for the church as a whole or for individuals? That's some work right there, is it not? Is that not taxing work? Is that not emotional kind of work that drains us? I'm not talking about tacitly mentioning somebody's name in a prayer. I'm not talking about just that. I'm talking about laboring, identifying with someone in prayer. You might say empathizing. Being prepared through that to minister to them. We might not ever know or see that in a person's life because they're kind of quiet. You know, I find that true sometimes with Christians who are, they find themselves in their latter years, they're bedridden now, and they can't be at church. And I want to encourage that person. I want to say, what? Well, you need to look at it this way. You've been freed up, okay? Because there's a lot going on. And you can be that prayer warrior. And your relationship with Christ can grow just like it would if you were sitting out there in the fellowship. And you can be involved. You can make a difference. And does it really matter if somebody knows that, hey, it's you and the efforts of your prayers in their life that has caused this great thing to happen in their life? They're giving honor and glory to God, but they don't know that behind the scenes it was you, in large part, who was faithful to pray and to take them before heaven, take their circumstance before God. I tell you, those are the things that are revealed later in heaven. Those are the treasures that are laid up. It doesn't matter if somebody knows to give you credit for that here. That's not what it's about. What matters is that you did the work of Christ and it resulted in eternal change in somebody's life. That's what matters. So we don't know. Be careful with these traits and abilities. Well... We can look at Peter's life and we can see some positive things about his life. We know that he was eager. We see that represented. We know that he was aggressive. Our scriptures popping up in your mind. I didn't go so far as to write things down to match these up. Like when all of a sudden in the garden when he pulls out his sword and whacks off a guy's ear. Okay, you know these things about Peter. He was bold, right? Except there was one time in his life when he wasn't too bold. He's outspoken. He's a spiritual man. You can see it. You can see him taking inventory when he was out and 
Jesus told him to throw the net over here. And fish, well, we fish, there ain't nothing over there. He, fish, he throws the net, net out in obedience to Christ. He pulls in the fish, then he comes in. And what does he immediately do when he gets on shore? He bows at Jesus' feet and he says, Lord, depart from me because I am a sinful man. But he was over-eager sometimes, right? He, he got ahead of himself. He, he was thoughtless in his words. He was reckless in his words. I've had to apologize for reckless words. Have you? He was impetuous. He was impulsive. He can be carnal. He was carnal. He was vacillating. Sometimes he was undependable, skeptical, reluctant, brash. All these things come out of a study, if you will, from the Scripture about Peter. And yet Christ takes him, uses him. And how does he do it? As a leader... I guess you, well, I know you can refer to Christ as the ultimate leader because he knows exactly what everybody needs, exactly when they need it. He knows exactly when to test them. He knows exactly how much responsibility to give them, to challenge them. But he started with Peter in a very practical way. What was the first thing he did for Peter that would go a long way in, in developing who he was to become. What would you think it is? What did he do? Yeah, I'm sorry. I meant to say Simon just to give you a hint. But yeah, his name was Simon. Simon Barjona. Simon, son of Jonah. He gave him a name. Petros, which is a piece of rock, which is a, a little stone, but representative of something hard, something genuine. That's what he called him. I love the example, and I'd heard of this uh, example before, before I ever read it in my studies here, but I remember, I'm a, I'm a baseball fan, not as big as I used to be, but back in the day, anybody was a Dodger fan, uh, Tommy Lasorda and all that group, they had a ball player, a pitcher, a tall, skinny guy named Orel Hershiser. Everybody, ball, you know Orel Hershiser. But I had actually heard years ago before I ever saw the account in any commentary anywhere, I heard this account about how Lasorda dealt with him. Because he had potential. And he didn't have a lot, but he had potential. And he could kind of hit the strike zone in his ball mood, but he was so as underconfident. Lasorda said that a lot of that was because they poked at him all the time. They made jokes about him. Hey, uh, Orel, be sure to run around in the shower there so you can get wet, buddy. Okay? Because he was tall <laughs> and thin, you know. He had, a, he had a pinstripe suit that had one stripe on it and all that kind of stuff. You know, they just always <laughs> letting him have it. Yeah, stand sideways, stick out your tongue, you look like a zipper. Okay. But it began to wear on him. Tommy Lasorda nicknamed him Bulldog. And they, everybody kind of chuckled at that. But Lasorda reemphasized that. And when he would get three balls on somebody and come back and strike them out on the next three pitches, Lasorda would go crazy. He would come out of the dugout, that's my Bulldog, okay, and... And Orel Hershiser began to believe that he was the bulldog, okay? I don't care how God does it, okay? Through the influence of someone else or whatever. And that's just an example. But a lot of times, here's the issue. It's how we think about ourselves. Now, in the Christian life, thinking about ourselves will eventually take us where? Follow me here. Where will that take us? We think about ourselves, our capabilities, what God has given us maybe, but where will that ultimately 
take us, if we want to be effective for Him, it'll take us to a point where we realize I don't have anything to bring. At my very best, I've discovered in Isaiah 64 that my righteousness, my very best is a filthy rag, he says in one translation. I don't have anything to bring. Now I've looked at myself. I'm thankful for what God has done in my life, but ultimately I know I'm totally dependent upon Him. Totally. That's where that will take us. And that's where Peter needed to go. And it took him some time to get there, did it not? It took, some, it took a lifetime for him to get there. It really did. His new name was a challenge to him, a consistent reminder of what he should be. And it's interesting, you can look. Scripture reveals that Christ, if you go back and look, used the word Simon instead of Peter when he was rebuking Peter or when he was dealing with uh, challenging Peter. And Peter was demonstrating earthly values. Jesus referred to him as Simon. And it was a constant reminder to him, Peter, you're growing. Peter, you've got to identify what is an issue in your life. You've got to do that, man. We've got to move on here. Jesus kept it before him. Luke twenty two thirty one. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. He's going to run you through the ringer. And then I didn't write it here, but he adds, but when you're converted, and that is not born again, but when you're turned, when you've gone through that experience, when you've learned from that experience, then you can minister. Then you can do that. That's wholly consistent with Ezra's plan. Ezra says, I got to know the Word. I've got to do the Word. And then and only then can I teach the Word. Matthew, or I say Mark 14, 37, it says, And he came and found them sleeping. You know the, where we're at in the garden. And said to Peter, but this is what Jesus said, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one Hour? He goes back and he calls him Simon. John 21, 15 through 17. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And we know that's from 21 there where Peter is restored. Jesus comes to him and deals with him because he knows in that particular case that, man, Peter's at the end of his rope. He'd already said, I'm done with this. I'm going fishing. I'm a failure. I can't do it. Jesus said, no. You're not off the hook, man. Simon, do you love me more than these? What do you think Jesus was talking about when He said more than these? What had Peter said? I'm going fishing. I'm going back. I'm going back. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than all of this? And you know the story. And you really got to look at the words here because Peter said, do you... Jesus said, do you love me? He used the word agape. Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. Peter said phileo, like brotherly love. He couldn't say agape love. He couldn't say that. And Jesus responded to him that first. He said, feed my sheep. I can't feed sheep. I failed three times. I had a little girl come up to me and accuse me of being a follower. And I started cussing at her. All right? I'm a failure. Jesus asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Agape? 
Do you? Peter responded again, but he used the word phileo. He could not say agape. Couldn't do it. What was the response? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, one or the other. Jesus would not let him off the hook. And here's the clincher. The third time when Jesus said, Do you love me, Peter? Jesus used the word phileo. And it said it, it grieved Peter. It cut him to the quick. Peter cared. His faith was genuine. It was not complete. God was not through with him. You said, Dana, you said, thank God for Peter. And friends, that's where we all are. That's where we are. We're at different places along that line of sanctification, progressive sanctification. But Jesus would respond again here with that third question, and he said, You feed my sheep. That's what you've been called to do. That's what you've been trained to do. That's what you've been prepared to do. I promise to never leave you, never to forsake you. I'm going to be with you, he would say later on when he's. No, he'd said that later on. He's already gone. But he would tell him, I'm it. I'm the one you're relying on. Stop relying upon yourself. Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels more than any other name except Jesus. No one speaks as often as Peter does. And no one is spoken spoken to by the Lord as often as Peter. At least the accounts that we have in the Gospels. No disciple is so frequently rebuked by the Lord as Peter. And no disciple ever rebukes the Lord except Peter, Matthew 16, 22. No one else confessed Christ more boldly or acknowledged His Lordship more explicitly, yet no other disciple ever verbally denied Christ as forcefully or as publicly as Peter did. No one is praised and blessed by Christ the way Peter was, yet Peter was also the only one Christ ever addressed as Satan. The Lord had harsher things to say to Peter than he ever said to any of the others. And that's a quote out of the 12 ordinary men. Thank God for Peter. I'm glad you said that. That's what we should have titled today. Because it does show us what we are, what our great need is, and how we can continue. The great hope that we have in being able to progress in our Christian life and service, once again, not because of anything within us specifically, but because of the faithfulness of Christ, because of His faithfulness. Scripture continued to record Peter's difficulties. I'll end with this. Even after Pentecost, and there's a lesson there, as I said, the, the tentacles remain, do they not? And we know there's a lot of transition going on here, you know, since Pentecost. And we see things going on in the, in the church, you know, all these miraculous gifts and so on and so forth going on for a while here uh, until they've served their purpose. But in Acts chapter 10, should be the first thing that comes to your mind regarding Peter and where he's at between his ears. Because you got this... Uh, Roman centurion Cornelius praying. He knows some things about God. He's moving toward God. He's a God-fearing man. His, some things are evidence in his life. People love him and care about him. But he's praying, and it's 
the prayer is answered and says, I'm going to show you what you must do to be saved and you and your house. And the, the vision in the prayer tells him, you know, to go and you seek out Peter at Joppa and so forth. So he goes and does that. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit is getting Peter ready, right? Christ is getting him ready to deal with this. And why does he have to do that? <laughs> because Cornelius is a Gentile, Okay. For heaven's sakes, he's not only a Gentile, he's a Roman centurion. I mean, he's, he's an occupying government here. Peter's not ready to deal with that. So he gets his vision that comes down. It's got all these things on there that the law, law of Moses says, you're not, you're not supposed to eat that. You're not supposed to have anything to do with it. It's unclean. To say nothing about dealing with or even being in the house of a Gentile, you can't do that. And what's interesting there is it says, the voice man says, you know what, God, you know, he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, I've never done anything like that. I'm not going to do it. Now he's standing there arguing with, and he says, what God has called clean, Peter, don't you call uncommon, okay, or common rather. That happens, and it says it had to happen three times, okay, three times before he got the message. But he did get the message. He eventually got the message. He would even say later on when he's preaching at Cornelius' house, he says, hey, the Lord, I'm paraphrasing, he said, the Lord, he said, I know and you know that it's taught, we're taught not to even enter the house of a Gentile person, but he said, God has shown me different. So God was dealing with him. He continued to do that. He had the raw material, it says. He had the right life experiences. He had the right character qualities all because of God's goodness but he needed the fullness of the spirit of God in his life Galatians 2:11 is that account where Paul says hey you want to talk about Peter I'll tell you about Peter I got in his face one day I withstood him to the face because he was to be condemned and when he was talking about how when the Jewish muckety-mucks came down to visit I believe it was Antioch that he acted one way toward them and shunned the Gentile believers there. Paul saw that. Paul's good Christian friend, was he not? And he comes along and he says, basically, we don't do that. Okay, that's, a, that's evidence of something else in your life. And he confronted him about it. I hope you have a good friend, at least one, who will do that for you. I hope you do. They're not going to ever use anything against you. They're not ever going to take advantage of you because they pray for you. They love you. They see the power of God working in your life. But they wouldn't hesitate to come along and say, Hey man, you, you need to think about that, okay? You need to start with God's Word. Man, that's, that's the joy of fellowship in the church. If we don't welcome that, if we take an attitude with that, then we got a bigger problem. That's just the way it is. That would speak of a deficiency of knowledge and will in our life to be submissive to the power of God. And we want to submit ourselves to that. Well, let's stop there. We'll look at Andrew. We'll start with him next Sunday.